Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about vertical integration and how it gives an investor and an operator advantages in Opportunity Zone and private equity real estate investments. And joining me, I have Chad DeBolt, Managing Director and Principal at Saxum Real Estate. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And, you know, let's just dive right in. So for our our listeners and viewers who aren't already familiar with Saxum, and I'm sure we have at least a couple LPs who are listening, but for those of us who aren't already LPs, can you tell us more about Saxum Real Estate? And (coughs) Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Saxum Real Estate is a a real estate investment development company. We execute across multiple verticals on a national scale. Uh, and I think really what is unique about us, and you mentioned it, is that we are truly operators. Uh, I think one of the biggest questions an investor should ask is really when you're dealing with real estate companies or real estate firms, a lot of them will say they're, uh, they're a full service real estate shop. And the fact is that's comp- just not true. What they typically do is they will raise money and structure funds and then they'll partner with developers. So we are both of those at the same time. So we're a hybrid. So we have capital markets. We know how to raise money. Uh, and all those type of things. We know how to structure, of course, opportunity zone funds and those deals. But at the same time, we have an entire team, we call it DevCon, of development construction professionals that manage our projects um, really in-house. We still get GCs and will perform because you know, we're on a national scale in other markets to GCs, but it allows us to really, uh, really control the overall process. So that's what we are. We're vertically integrated. Uh, we have basically two headquarters, one down in Austin and one in, uh, up in Summit, New Jersey. And we've grown the company to about 35 teammates, uh, really, since uh, with a lot of that growth uh, happening since the beginning of COVID. So we've really, it's been a unique story where we know COVID was difficult for a lot of people, but the pandemic, frankly, for us was we didn't really just survive. We thrived through it. And again, the company going to COVID is probably 10 teammates and we've grown to 35 and we have about seven, eight million square feet of development in our control, uh, equating to approximately about two billion worth of capitalization and projects. Wow, two billion. Okay, so I, you know, I looked through your materials on your website and everything, and I, I wanted to ask about the verticals that you invest in, that you operate in. Um, I read industrial, multifamily, office, mixed use, and student housing. So uh, among that list, and I realize some of them are probably bigger than others. Uh, which of those do you see the most opportunity on a go forward basis? You know, like are any of those sort of legacy sectors? Um, are, are they are they all equally attractive right now? Or are there a couple that Saxum is really investing heavily in right now? Yeah, so we're very opportunistic as a firm. We really cut our teeth and, and raise our initial investment vehicles around heavy value at office and multifamily deals. Um, about a decade ago. And, you know, since then, again, as, as the market change, you have to change. And then you start to, you know, as we've got a lot uh, larger in terms of size, you really want to gravitate towards asset classes where you could produce the best risk adjusted returns for those capital, uh, the capital that wants to be ball- involved in those assets. Um, and just in general, which is, you know, some sound fundamental investments that we think we can get great returns. So to answer that question, it, it hasn't really changed too much in terms of, the more recent few years, but about five years ago, we did start to transition more into purely uh, multifamily and uh, and industrial. And to clarify a little further, when you think of multifamily, we, we actually we call it housing because we we have about three thousand beds of student housing that we basically consider a sub strategy in the uh, multifamily, you know, excuse me, in the, in the housing sector. So you could argue that within housing, we have multifamily, which is obviously you know, market rate apartments. We have about uh, 1,600 uh, units in development at the moment. And then we have about 3,000 beds of student housing, which are typically value-add deals. Uh, and then we also have, as I mentioned, industrial. The industrial strategy is similar, 
it's a national strategy. A lot of the main, uh, you know, MSAs, major ports, DCs, you name it. But that strategy is across both dry storage and then also cold storage. We're very heavily involved in cold storage as well. So that's basically been our focus. And if you look at it, really industrial has been in darling vertical for real estate over the last five years plus. We've seen rents just explode um, at, at exponential rates, frankly. Um, and, you know, second to it, uh, but, but it's really the top two are, are far ahead of all the other verticals is, is multifamily. Class A multifamily, second to industrial is the best performer in terms of real estate verticals going into and coming out of COVID. So it's been really unique. So those are the really the verticals where we've hanged, you know, we've hanged our hats and um, where we really focus on. Yeah, and you know, both of those two verticals that you mentioned, you know, your your super verticals, industrial and multifamily, it it seems to me it's it's almost as simple as the supply and demand curve. Is there's too much demand in those sectors, too too little supply to meet the demand and you know, with both industrial, including cold storage and multifamily, you know, constantly from LPs, I'm hearing about those sectors. And and obviously on the sponsor side, I'm seeing a lot of projects, a lot of, you know, funds and investment there. Do you think that those sectors are, are being adequately addressed in terms of, you know, the, the creation of new product, you know, new square feet, enough square feet, enough units, enough doors? Are those curves going to begin to stabilize uh, where there's enough supply to meet the demand, or is it still just the growth in demand is is faster than the growth in supply? And so those are going to continue to be, you, you know, are they going to continue to outperform, I guess is what I'm asking. Absolutely. I mean, there's technical tailwinds and there's fundamental tailwinds. You know, you name it. Uh, on the fundamental side, it's, it's and again, they're both different, right? But we always say on on the fundamental side, they're they're necessities. People need housing; they need to live somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know, people need logistics. You need services, right? Again, in terms of e-commerce, when you still look at the e-commerce numbers as a percentage of retail sales, it's still very low. You know, there's different stats going out there that the supply of industrial needs to still double over the next 20 years as e-commerce, you know, demand continues to increase. And there's only so many infill type, you know, uh, assets and, and land out there to actually be developed. So uh, it's become really, you know, a really fundamentally strong uh, asset class. Um, you know, and at the same time, like when we think if you want to dive into the sub strategy, like cold storage, you know, one of our sayings is people got to eat like the same thing. Like you, these are, these are recession resistant businesses. Right. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, our, on the cold storage side of the business, some of the stats are interesting. A lot of these different large cold storage players, even during some of the, you know, the great recession, um, you know, back about what, 12 years ago, give or take, even early 2000s, there's almost none to very little, if any layoffs in cold storage during these moves. Cause there's not enough buildings. The average age of a cold storage building is like 42 years old. So these are really, wow. again, in the United States. So these are very old arcane buildings. When you talk about buildings that need a lot of power and there's efficiencies that are, that you pay premiums for, um, it becomes really unique. So it's, um, I think they're very strong sectors, you know, the technical same thing for different reasons. Um, you know, construction costs have went wild, which have, which has slowed some deals down because of, if the budgets are going up so hard for hard costs, we just have to decrease the land. And what that means is some sellers just won't sell their land. They're going to sit on it. Mm. You know, but the thing is, I think, um, you know, I think the construction inflation horses out of the barn and it's just, even during recessions, you know, numbers we looked at back during the great recession, it's like construction costs from the peak were down like 20%. Like we're, we're seeing budgets, you know, up 50%, you know, huge numbers in a couple of years, like massive numbers. So like, even if the market did cool and you had a 10 to 15, say 20% move lower in hard costs, you're still much higher than, than what we were. So, and again, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? There's labor, there's materials, there's just general tough supply chains. There's a lot of reasons these budgets have to carry more contingencies and just more room for error, error in general. So that's uh, that's probably a long answer to your question, but we think that again, multifamily, 
and industrials and be here to say, you know, the, the quick and the and the quick bullet point for Maltese is as simple as Class A Maltese absolutely crushed it coming out of COVID. I mean, some of these markets, I mean, Class A Multi in Austin was up 30% last year, 25% year over year in Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah. You hear similar numbers in New York City. Remember, New York City sold off a lot too. So they're higher numbers off lower numbers. You know, these percentages are not off much lower numbers. Like they're big numbers. And then like Philly, we have some deals in Philly. Philly's not as you know, exciting as say, nothing against Philly, but it's not going to get that type of growth like in Austin or Dallas-Fort Worth. But right. Philly rents are up 10% last year. Um, really unique. I mean, still big numbers and really five to 6% for the three years before that in class A multi. So definitely outpacing inflation. And, and the last point I'd make is no matter what you're investing in for any of the LPs on this call, the one question you got to look in the mirror and ask yourself over and over again is, am I investing in assets that have utility where the operators could pass on costs to consumers? And if you're in a business where costs can't be passed on, then your bottom line is going to get squeezed badly. And that's the thing is we believe and we're seeing it. Again, these rents are exploding in multifamily because, right, it's, it's more expensive to buy houses now, too. So you rent, right? Again, rents are typically positively correlated to Fed funds, which has obviously been moving higher. Uh, typically, unless you get Volcker air inflation in the mid-teens and then everything is going to have a lot of trouble. But it is keeping up. And same thing, we're seeing similar you know, in an industrial rent. So again, I'd always ask myself for my investment strategy, can cost incurred on the business be pushed on to consumers? And, and again, I don't see that in a bad way. I just basically mean, but consumers are happy to pay it because they still need that service. It's mission critical to them. So that's, that's an interesting rule of thumb. So, you know, just off the top of my head, I'm like, well, well that means the retail is riskier, right? Because if the consumer is feeling a lot of pressure, doesn't have as much disposable income. They still need a place to live, uh, right? They're still going to put a roof over their head. They're still going to spend money on food, but maybe some of that discretionary retail investing, maybe they're going to cut back on that. So, you know, retail, real estate, retail operators, there's going to be pressure on them. Um, what about office? I mean, is I honestly, I've been running the alternative investment podcast for over uh, about a year now, right? Coming out of the COVID lockdowns and everything. And no one even talks about office real estate anymore. You know, even, even operators who used to invest in it and build and operate office, is office real estate just, just dead? I mean, I don't think it is, but, it, you know, obviously you didn't mention it in, in terms of your top two, you know, hottest sectors. Do you think there's opportunity there or is it just, are the macro trends so poisonous that we should treat it like it's radioactive? Yeah, well, first off investments, there's nothing's ever dead, arguably. And the reason yeah. why is nice to be a bond trader for over a decade. We just say no bad bonds, just bad prices. And I kind of, I, I borrowed it for real estate. There's no bad buildings, just bad price. So th there's a race to the bottom. There's a price where you could charge rents and still have a lot of upside where office could make sense. But the question is, is how much does that have to reprice? Um, and that's just not the games we play. I don't like undercutter type games where you're just trying to get the reset the basis lower to to basically undercut the guys that are next to you. Because what happens when someone buys the next building cheaper than your building? It's not really the most sound investment decision, arguably. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's going on with a lot of office um, and I don't even know what the updated, you know, occupancy numbers are that are in, in Manhattan right now, but I still think they're probably severely under 30 percent, mm -hmm. uh, under 40. I would probably guarantee um, if they say that's not the case, they're probably lying. Um, and I know there's some seasonality with summer, but yeah, um, yeah I think offices. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sitting in a building right now that we built in Austin, Texas, which is the first opportunity zone development in Austin, Texas to break ground. It's an office deal. Um, and so leasing has been slower and this is top, you know, top of the line, class A building, uh, that we built on budget on time, but, uh, you know, we're over 50% leased, but I hope to be fully leased by now. And it's just a factor that things take longer. We'll lease it. If I want to own office anywhere, I want to own it in Austin, Texas. I'll tell you, it's some of these other high growth, you know, really, uh, capital friendly States. Um, but, um, but yeah, I would, I'd be aware. I, I, again, I think you're talking about it's hard to put your finger on from an investment standpoint um, where it's cheap enough to buy when you're talking about 
change in behaviors of the, of the actual consumers. And when you get this work from home set up and then companies start to, you know, bake that into their budgets and their models and what have you, it makes it a really tough proposition to see a lot of people coming back in droves. So it's, uh, again, I, like I said, I, I don't even say it's a dirty asset class. Again, we, we, we start the, the company was founded on office, um, really, uh, a lot of our deals, but it was really more boutique deals outside Manhattan. We weren't buying large midtown Manhattan deals. Where sure. there's you know very high barriers to entry and minimal supply, and, and we were able to really push rents heavy. But we've been uh, selling a lot of those assets right now, and it's just more so because they're smaller deals that, frankly, we just are not in our strategy anymore. We're doing you know much larger deals, but they're they're good assets. I think there's uh, you know we we extract a lot of the value out of them, frankly, and it's time for us to move on. But yeah, I do think I think it's pretty simple. It's multifamily and industrial. Uh, or like I said, housing and industrial. I think those are the, if I'm an investor and I'm looking at real estate, then that's where I'd focus. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I appreciate your perspective as a bond trader that there's, you know, no bad assets, only bad prices. Um, you know, it comes to mind that, you know, you mentioned societal tra- uh, changes, right? And then that's hard for an investor to quantify. So it's some of this office space is going to lease up and it's going to be, you know, fully leased five or 10 years from now. And some of it probably is going to be like the Blockbuster video building, you know, the triple net lease on a Blockbuster video 20 years ago or something. Um, you know, and, and I agree, it's it's probably a, a lot riskier. What is the Warren Buffett quote? It's something like, I don't look for the three foot fence to jump over. I look for the one foot high fence that I can just step over. Um, yeah. And that, that might be multifamily right now. Well, let's talk about the pipeline because, you know, you mentioned economic uncertainty, you know, the federal rate, inflation, just a lot of changes in the past six months compared to where we were during the lockdowns. And, and you mentioned that Saxom actually thrived during 2020 and into 2021. Uh, how, how have things changed into 2022? And, and, you know, is the economic uncertainty, is it affecting your pipeline? I mean, obviously it has changes on, you know, on a pro forma, maybe on the budget, but is, is it materially changing the projects that you're getting involved in? Or uh, are you able to sort of adjust and pivot to, to execute, you know, on, on what your original vision was for this year? Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. I think that the market really did get rattled and you know, April to kind of what's happening today, we're getting a rate scare ourselves, right? The market's almost off 2% purely off mm-hmm. move higher in rates. I think people, the market is very, you know, if you look at the Fed funds curve, there's there's actually eases being priced in at the end of, just a look, I think, believe about the end of next year. So the market's basically saying, which almost sounds like a soft landing, which is not going to happen. It's almost never happened. Fed's always behind the curve and then they overhike and cause a recession. It's just what happens. So I think that, um, I think that would be really tough. And I think that, you know, we've had, well, such sorry, a strong sorry to interrupt Chad, but I mean, isn't that really, isn't that really the only way to stop inflation is to put the economy into a recession? I mean, so I, I went back and I listened to a show that you recorded on the opportunities on this podcast with Jimmy Atkinson. So it was about a year ago. And you mentioned that, you were seeing both kinds of inflation. You were seeing cost push inflation and demand pull inflation, right? My concern is that you raise interest rates, you sort of assist the economy to go into this recession, but may, mainly it'll, it, it might only affect certain types of inflation. You know, So we might see inflation moderate a little bit, but not necessarily see uh, a solution to like the supply chain issues that we're seeing. Um, is there any chance that we're actually going to lick inflation this year or next year, or is it just going to be structurally higher for here on for, for the next, you know, half decade or so? I mean, I think it's going to be structurally, structurally higher. It depends on the fed. I mean, not getting political here, but I think the fed has become a political body right? and it shouldn't have been, um, you know, I, I think the last chairman that wasn't arguably political was probably Alan Greenspan. And since that it's gotten politicized. So, I think now it's, um, but Jerome Powell, I think he's, you know, his legacy is going to be awful. It's going to be almost like, you know, 
uh, pre-Volker um, error, which it's, it's going to be on his hands because, uh, you know, and they all sat there and Janet Yellen too, just saying, oh, it's just transitory. How many times you hear transitory? And then, and then, you know, inflation is insidious. And the thing is, is I think someone said it once, like, you know, when you have deflation, you know, generally people, they'll complain about it here and there, but it's not like the end of the world. When you have inflation, like wars happen, <laughs> like people lose their minds. And it, it's a different thing. Inflation is very scary because it, 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 it affects people's livelihoods tremendously in terms of being able to just buy food and necessities. So I think like, you know, and I would say like, I've always said that inflation, like, you know, and again, and this kind of answers your question, how long it's going to be around. We've just printed trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like that's still in the system. <laughs> like like th- there has to be some, has to get drained, whether it's through, you know, QT, which is what quantitative tightening, right? As which is the opposite of easing, where the Fed was just buying all these bonds to keep their portfolio from decreasing its size, which right. most people don't even understand, which is insane. Um, while rates are at zero, so now at least like they're draining some of this money out with QT. But at the same time, you know, there's just still a lot of um, money in the system, and once you start to anchor people's view on inflation, it's hard to slow it down. The way to slow it down is just to really hike and hold rates um, higher longer than people expect. And this market is not going to like if rates are held higher, say, 4% from funds for longer than people think. Hmm. You know, the market's not expecting that, those type of level of Fed funds. And I think it could happen, which would be pretty dicey, I think, in general for risk assets. Uh, so, so you think, think the that, Fed? you yeah. think the Fed then is more afraid of the higher sustained inflation than they are of a more severe recession? Because I guess my calculus is, is if they really want to moderate inflation, I don't think they're going to get it back to two and a half percent. But if they want to get it to four and a half percent to stay there, we're going to need a pretty significant recession um, to to achieve that. And um, I, I don't know which they're more afraid of at the Fed, you know, the sustained deep recession or the sustained higher inflation. Uh, the, the more worrisome is the higher inflation, uh, I think, because again, like what I said, people like Weimar Republic, go back and look at history wars, like people died from inflation, like it was on a global scale. And again, I don't mean that in a dark way, I just mean like things people have worse. No, but you, you're right. I mean, if you, yeah, read, yeah. you read early 20th century and you read about World War One and World War Two, inflation, big proximate cause of a lot of warfare in the 20th century. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think they're, and like I said, it's harder to stop inflation as opposed to, you know, if we're going to a big recession, they can take out all the alphabet suit tools and tarp and all these things they did before and clean up assets and then create inflation again. But I think like this is the fear of, you know, kind of where we, you know, are now. So I I do think, um, I I think it's, uh, I I think it's something that is hard to overcome. I think they can, but like, I mean, look at two tens. It's never been proven wrong. It's almost negative by 30 to 40 basis points. It's extremely negative in terms of the bond curve. Uh, yeah. In the bond market, again, we used to joke and say the bond market traders are smarter than the equity guys, but what have you, it's neither here nor there. But the bond market is telling you we're going into a recession. The yeah. equity guys, we have S&P 4,300, nothing to see here. Rah, 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 right? Yeah. But there's a big credit issues that are coming you know, down the pipe at some point here. And I think that, you know, and that's the thing, like if you got to say like, oh, well, do we have to reprice? What's that look like? I mean, S and P hit twenty two hundred at the lows in COVID. We're almost double that. The market is still high on an absolute basis. People aren't poor. Like if they didn't sell in the hole, right? I think going into COVID, that was the lows of COVID, right? But like going into COVID, I think it was like you know thirty two. We're stuck thirty forty percent of yeah. like before COVID happened. And again, because that's all the money that was printed, frankly. So it's um. I, I think it's, I think you got to be careful. I think you do. Again, I'm not a stock expert, but I think like, again, stick to companies that could push blue chip companies that could push through, you know, their, their, their costs onto consumers um, that um, are in assets with high utility, you know, these dividend aristocrats that never missed paying dividends. These are companies that have been around a long time, things like that. When I think of dividend aristocrats, I think of multifamily and class A. Like, you know, when you got a building that's 95% occupied and it's core market that's, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, great location and, and what have you, um, 
it's going to do really well. Uh, and especially when you build it each year, if building costs don't go down, then your competition of supply is they have to charge higher and higher rents because their basis is higher. So, and again, industrial is similar too. So again, I think that's like a reoccurring theme is real estate does protect against inflation. Um, but you know, I, for, I missed to tell you one other thing is like we are seeing repricing in real estate, like right now, like industrial, depending on the market, industrial, which is the darling, right, of real estate. I've said that we, we're seeing land prices down 20 to 40 percent in some of the larger industrial markets because okay. they were just so high, mm-hmm. right? And now costs aren't coming down on construction much. Land prices are still high. Well, deals don't pencil unless the land goes to zero. So you mm-hmm. just won't build then, you'll wait, right? So you're starting to see that happen in some markets where if construction doesn't come down, then you just won't have supply, which again argues, right, from a technical basis um, for higher rents as well. And that's from purely a technical, you know, cost standpoint. Well, and Chad, this, this brings up the point you're, some deals aren't penciling, right. But as we discussed earlier, the supply and demand curve for these real estate sectors, isn't going to change, you know, industrial, you mentioned there might be twice as much demand in industrial 20 years from now. Uh, multifamily that we have a huge shortage of housing units and the shortage appears to be getting worse every year, not closing, actually getting wider, uh, the Delta that is needed. So if all of these deals aren't penciling, and it seems to me that, you know, the, the operators who are able to kind of hold the line and figure this out and, uh, control their costs and get deals to pencil and, you know, still make money, still make their investors money. Um, they're potentially poised for enhanced returns, right? If if some of the other competing projects aren't penciling. So let's talk about Saxum and your vertical integration, because I understand that, you know, Saxum isn't just a sponsor, you're also a developer and you take a lot of pride in that and that adds a lot of value to mm-hmm. your operations. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how Saxum is different uh, from a lot of, you know, competing funds or sponsors where they're contracting with the developer versus being the developer and, and how that affects your ability to control costs and execute. Yeah. I mean, it's everything. I mean, costs are changing by the day, right? So, and are they still, are they still spiking? I mean, it, compared to three months ago when it's like very clear now that we're in a recession, has, has that not slowed down the input costs? Not much. Believe it or not, and even it's not much because you know that's the. It's just there's all these anomalies in the market. It's not just the actual cost, you know, of the actual material. It's also the ability to refine the material mm. uh, and get it, you know, get it to where you could actually use it. There's all these different bumps in the road which have caused tremendous stress into the supply chain. So. Yeah, it's 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 very difficult, and that's what I mean. Like another thing, I just tell your investors is, you always want to understand how people are aligned to deals. And again, uh, I'm pointing out the point where a lot of these companies will have sponsors, where it might be a JV, where you have the the partner that raises the money, and then the partner that builds the building. And what happens is the partner that frankly builds the building, the development partner that the investors might not even know, besides a bio and a deck. Um, those guys might not have any payment performance based on the rents or how the deal does. It's purely like a development fee. It's fee. It's called fee-based development where they make a percentage of the total hard cost for the deal and that's what their money to make. So they have a totally misaligned incentive with the investor, an LP, but even, even with the GP, there's not an aligned incentive in that case. Yeah. Now, if they don't build it on budget on time and things like that, there's ways to you know, callbacks and other provisions in the in the budget, right? Which, which of course, those are things that are important. So there, there's ways to put some teeth to it, but a lot of times you'll see that where, you know, where guys can be cutting corners if they're not fully aligned. So I think that's a big thing. That's something that we really work hard on is just, again, the whole company's aligned. And, you know, again, we delivered three buildings on budget on time during COVID, uh, uh, three of those were they actually were all steel too, and steel prices were parabolic. Um, so that we're really proud to say that. And you know, it's um, I think that's a testament just to our team, our team of you know across across the whole team too. Frankly, the acquisitions into leasing, obviously into DevCon, our development construction team, legal, 
you know, everything, asset management, as you bring it all together, it's a full team effort, but it's um, to build these buildings and get them done, uh, you know, on budget on time is, is not easy. So that's been, I think, the biggest thing about having a vertically integrated uh, platform. Um, again, we are truly operators. Being an operator means that, you know, you're running, you, you know, you're running these deals uh, in-house. So. Uh, I think that's, I think that's a question I'd ask, you know, I think everyone should be asking, um, you know, in this space. And also like another, just a kind of a pointer here is remember odds deals are development deals, as we said, right. They're development deals. You got to double your basis and 32 months or what have you. And the key is too, is I'd always ask that, the, you know, if you see a deal and an opportunity, deal, I'd always ask, is it as of right or is it require variances? And that's a very important question too, because there's a thing called, it's not just, uh, you know, construction risk, the risk of building a building, you have a thing called entitlement risk. Entitlement risk can actually build what we said we're going to build. Or, you know, you, you get, you have to go to you know, town meetings and things like that, and it becomes political and you have issues. So what as of right means is it means that your, your deal, your density, so which is the number of units, the height, you know, all these use, use of, the use of the building is all per code. So it's legally fits the code in that market. So in other words, that doesn't mean they can't still cause you problems because they could always find a way to, to slow you down and cause problems, sure. but legally they couldn't stop you. Like you literally would sue them, which again would waste years and no one wants to do that, but you could sure. get a deal done. But it's important for people to ask because a lot of, a lot of developers want to explain that to their investors and they might be in a deal that needs entitlements in terms of um, it's not as of right where you need variances. Variances, you have to go to the zoning board um, as the right deals typically go to the planning board, the zoning board is a much higher barrier. We're like, pretend in a market, you can only have 10 floors, but you need 12 floors for the deal to pencil. So you have to go explain to them, the burden of proof is on you to explain why you should be allowed 12 floors and why it's for the general good of the, of the community. And there's going to be, you know, all these positive reasons for doing that, but there's a lot more risk to that. So I would just say, again, a whole nother reason to invest with, operators who understand how to raise money and what have you, but also understand how to navigate the complexities of development and construction. Chad, I got to say everything you just described, it, it's all giving me heartburn, just imagining dealing with it, right? <laughs> you have to, yeah. Dealing with inflation, dealing with costs, dealing with zoning and all, and all of those risks. What really is the biggest risk? You know, what's, what's the thing that might keep you awake at night, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I'd say right now it's, it's straight up construction. Um, again, we're not taking heavy risk on the entitlements, so we think all the deals we're we're, we're raising money for and going after will get approved. Might take longer than we expect for the reasons I mentioned, but we feel confident we'll get them approved. And uh, it's really just navigating the supply chain on the on the on the construction side. Like I said, materials, labor, you name it. It's a it's a big lift. There's a lot of moving parts. And again, you know, the goal is to really lock in budgets quickly, mm -hmm. uh, start to buy out trades quickly uh, to limit that risk. So I would argue that it's, it's probably the most uh, complicated, difficult, challenging, however you want to describe it, uh, development environment that we might have seen in the last 50 years. And it's just because of all those different inputs that we're talking about. Um, now, what we do, there are ways to combat that. Like I mentioned, another one is you carry larger contingencies in your deal. So contingency is line items where, you know, if you have a 5% contingency and hard costs are $50 million, that'd be an extra $2.5 million in the budget that you're adding to the budget that you just assume you're going to have to spend because mm -hmm. things are going to cost more, right? Um, what it does, though, is that drags the returns on the deal sometimes because if you don't need that money, it just gets returned to investors. But wonder if you do need it. Right. So it's just, there's different ways to kind of, to plan for this, but. How do you even it underwrite it at doing development? I mean, thinking with ozone projects and like a, you know, a, a ground up development where I'm trying to estimate costs two or three years from now, it, that seems almost like mission impossible to me because if inflation moderates to four and a half versus yeah. if it's at eight and a half, over 24, 36 months. I mean, that's a huge delta. That's a, you know, how do you even underwrite that? Yeah, 
And no, we don't. So that'd be that example you just gave would be for a, a non as of right deal. So that'd be like a deal that you have to go fight the town and get a, get a variances and all that stuff. Then you could argue three years plus. So we, we just wouldn't even touch that. And most of our deals would be typically should be under a six month approval process. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's just, it's still, it's still time. Still, I mean, you could have in this market, you have a budget move 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, last year budgets were moving 20, 30, 40% in a year. You know, so if it's 40% a year, that could be a 20% move in six months. That could really cause problems. So you still have to be careful, but uh, in general, the projects we're doing, they're not that, uh, we're not waiting that long. So it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's just something that you got to be really in tune with. Got it. So let, let's talk about MSAs and the geographic areas that um, you all like right now. So I understand you're looking mostly at multifamily and industrial and that, you know, inflation and construction costs are a big headwind right now. Does that affect where you decide to build? Does that affect what projects you like? Are there areas where it's, you know, still cheaper to build ultimately? Um, does that factor into the decision or are you more just looking at the demand side where there's the most demand for multifamily, where there's the most demand for industrial? I think it's mostly fundamental to start. I mean, technicals do matter, but, um, you know, the thing about real estate is it's not to say it's not rocket science, but like sometimes the best investment strategies are the most simple ones. It's really just, we do this in student housing, you know, where, where are people moving to? You know, and, and to, I'll give you a student housing example, you know, it's not exactly opportunity zones, but it's a good way to think of things. Like in student housing, like we're buying universities with over 20,000 students, where over 80% of the kids are in-state, where in-state tuitions are five to 15 grand. These aren't 80,000 a year of art school with 2,000 kids, sure. right? In states where, you know, we own a couple of deals in Georgia, where Georgia is the third fastest growing state for population. And it's the eighth largest populated state in the nation. So like you're lining up all these fundamental things. Mm -hmm. People want to live there, big in state. And you just start to build those stories. A lot of it, again, comes out to a lot of these small states down in the South, which are pro-business. I mean, you look like the stat was astounding during COVID. I think 101, I think it was 20, 2021, 140 or 50 million people visited Florida. So are you all investing then in the smile states or the Sun Belt? I mean, is that pretty much your wheelhouse? That is a target for multi, but I would tell you a lot of, we have a number of our units right now are Philadelphia and some of the areas outside the city. So like, again, it's not to say those were initial deals that we had found and those deals will still do great because like I'll give you an example. One of our deals that's live right now is in Port Chester, New York. Portchester sandwiched between Rye and Greenwich, which are you know two of the most affluent zip codes in the nation. Portchester just had really never been developed, but it's got a lot of good pluses to it. It's a 42-minute direct train to Grand Central Station, right? And that's really unique. And the reason why it was an opportunity zone was obviously it qualified, but it hadn't really been developed the last 20 years because of very arcane zoning. We knew about this, and when it came open, um, we were one of the first developers to start locking up land and, and get, get a deal going. So like that's unique because Manhattan's not going away. Yes, it could slow and a Manhattan office could have issues, but like multifamily in a town like that outside Manhattan, you know, on the water, half 50 yards from the train station, you know, that, that is truly unique. So again, like I was saying, no, no bad buildings, just bad prices. Like you could do great deals everywhere. I think like in broad strokes, I would say, obviously it's, you know, multifamily in the South is, you know, been a focus um, for sure. But, you know, land has gotten really expensive too in some deals, you know, in these Southern deals where that needs to cool down a little bit itself. But yeah, I would say, you know, that is a target. I'd say Carolina is down to Florida, across to Texas, as you think about it. And then on the industrial side, like you said, it's, it's really MSAs and ports. Uh, you know, we have you know, a number of different deals, uh, you know, we're doing now, but, you know, we have some deals in you know, Savannah, we have, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth, um, Atlanta, we have a half million square feet facility, Atlanta is one of the largest DCs in the, in the nation, and uh, just, you know, these, you know, New Jersey work on a couple of deals, Chicago, again, it's, 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 again, it's not rocket science, you can pull up the top MSAs, look at the top 10 ports, and you'll see where industrial buildings are, right, and that's the thing is just, if anything, the pandemic has you know, really shined a huge flashlight on the necessity and the importance of the supply chain and having an efficiently run supply chain. 
and that is not going away. If anything, it just becomes more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I really respect um, the philosophy that you, you detailed there. It's essentially opportunistic, right? And so different sponsors have different approaches to lining up projects and, you know, sh showing them to investors. Um, but I, I think it is a solid approach though, when a sponsor has a track record and investors can get to know the sponsor or invest with them and build that trust and reputation over time and allow them to be opportunistic, you know, because I, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that there would be opportunity outside New York in an opportunity zone, you know, to, especially to build any kind of multifamily. Um, but on the other hand, you know, true diversification, it's going to, it's going to need to be more than just multifamily in Phoenix, right? It's, <laughs> you're going to need to think a little bit broader to have a truly diversified fund. Um, so I really like that, uh, approach that you're taking. And so Saxum, I, I understand you do ground up construction. I mean, as a developer, obviously opportunity zones would be in your sweet spot, right? As uh, that development first approach. Uh, do you all do projects that are not in opportunity zones? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but like I said, though, they're it's still the same strategies. Mm -hmm. So we we firmly believe in multi, you know, and again, I say multifamily, but it's, it's really housing, right? Because again, we have student housing in there. But housing, people got to live somewhere and industrial, you know, whether people got to eat, people got to store their supplies close to where they need it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, those are high utility businesses. And I, you know, I'm really proud to say, I forget what the exact stats are, but I was looking on one of the websites. Um, I think the most recent update uh, was that we, I think we tipped over uh, 30 billion or so in money that's been raised for opportunity zones. And that's, I think over a thousand funds that were being tracked. But I think that's, uh, you know, again, I think it's probably double, triple that frankly, because a lot of people. That's a wild towards. underestimate. Yeah. I was, I was talking yeah, with Jimmy, my partner, and he thinks it's, at least triple that, if not more. Yeah, I think it's a hundred billion. If you made me guess, I mean, when the program started, there was supposedly six trillion unrealized gains. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's uh, it's still really, really small um, when when you when you're really looking at that. You're talking a few percent to get to those type of numbers. Um, when you think about it, I think it's literally two percent would get you 120 billion, right? So it, it's wow, yeah. very low. If two two percent of the gains went to opportunity. It'd be 120, right? And that, and this is today. That's since the program started. That's not annually. Like these are, you know, that's the total number. So it's, I think it's extremely low. Um, and that's not a knock on the program. I think it's just that people are still learning about the program. That's why it's great that you guys are doing you know, podcasts like this. I think it's the most historic tax incentive program in the last, you know, 50 years. So, um, but to answer your question, I think that uh, I'm very proud to say that most opportunity zone deals are multifamily deals. That's kind of on the fairway, what most people do. You know, like I said, we have an office deal in Austin. Again, first deal to break ground in Austin was an office deal. We're in the process. We've already delivered um, two cold storage industrial built to suit Oz deals. And that's a mouthful, but so we had a tenant <laughs> cold storage industrial building in opportunity zones. We have one in San Antonio, one in Michigan. I don't know anyone that's done an opportunity zone cold storage deal, um, frankly. Um, so it's pretty unique. And we have another two dry industrial um, opportunity zone deals um, up in Hazleton, PA, which we're also, we've already fully funded those, um, but that we're also uh, doing. Um, and I would tell you, this is getting a little more in the weeds, but again, to, to educate your investors, um, uh, the LPs on the call, um, one of the biggest um, you know, one of the biggest uh, advantages of opportunity zones, I hate to say tricks because it's not a trick. It's, it's completely on the fairway, is a refinance. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of financial advisors out there, and I'm not picking on financial advisors. They're, they've been great with us and what have you. But I think a lot are, are, are not as informed on the program. And some are, that are maybe scared of alternative assets will just say, you don't have any liquidity and your money's locked up 10 years. And that's a complete lie. Um, the liquidity is you do give up some liquidity, but what I mean by the locked up 10 years is, once these assets are built, which is typically for industrial much faster, 12 months, you can build these buildings, nine months, right? Uh, multi, two years to build, you know, and then lease up another year if you're talking a couple hundred unit uh, deal. Um, once they're fully leased, you refi your money out. And typically you would refi about 30 to 50% of your money out. And a refi is not a sale in any business, real estate, if you're refining companies, anything in the tax code, it's a return. 
It's a non-taxable event and it is not a sale. So what we've done, and there's a, there's a lot of debates out there, but for opportunity zones, we just recommend you don't get a negative basis. That's when you refi more money out than you initially put in. Sure. That's where you could potentially have some tax issues. But if you just refi out your money, now you've just created after-tax money that you can invest in stocks or bonds or more real estate, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have your same exposure in opportunity zones. And that's wild because and I'll give you a data point. Our one, those two cold sword deals I told you about, we built them in nine months. Month 15, we refied 70% of the money out. Wow. So if you were an investor and gave us, say, $5 million, um, it's actually more than that. I think it was almost 75%. You would literally have gotten back $4 million in 15 months. And you still don't have to pay your taxes on the $5 million to the end of 26. And that $4 million is now... It's not say tax free, but you don't pay taxes on it right then. So that's gonna that's gonna way more than cover your deferred tax liability. That, not even close. Yeah. yeah, and you and you did never sell. You never sold the deal. I mean, it's the great. Right. And that's one argument. Like industrial opportunity zones are so valuable and unique because you could build them so fast, and it might be one or two tenants. You could be stabilized in a year, build it in nine months to twelve months. You have your tenant in tow. You know, a couple months later, and you could be selling it in under two years, or not even selling it again, refine it and ripping all your money out, uh, which is again perfectly allowable per the tax code. And a lot of people don't really understand that. So it's, you know, and then you still have a cash flowing building. Like you didn't sell your shit, your ownership, you just refined the asset, you just changed right. the, ca- the capital stack. That's all. Right. So it's, it's, it's really powerful. And like I said, uh, not to go down a rabbit hole on that, but I think it's really important. A lot of people don't understand that. I think it's important to understand that. And then, like I said, if you could find investments that are just not, and again, I love multifamily, but again, that's something unique we do here at Saxon. You can invest in multi housing, you know, or industrial and opportunity zones, or like I said, or office, we've done some office deals. So it's kind of unique. So Chad, speaking of Saxon and your unique uh, projects, do you have any open funds right now uh, for Opportunity Zone investors or or any other private placement offerings? Sure, and um, and, and I, I appreciate the the uh, explanation you just gave too. You know, I think a lot of people get confused when they hear funds; they think of multi asset funds. Most of our deals we've done as private placements, and that's typically because we don't really do a deal if the equity check's under ten million. So a ten million dollar equity check would be like a thirty million dollar deal, give or take, in terms of total capitalization. So when you get to large enough numbers, you don't arguably need a fund where if you're doing a bunch of smaller, you know, 500K, million dollar type equity checks, then it makes more sense. But we've done all of our deals as single assets. We're actually on our 12th deal. Uh, and again, that's something we're excited about. Too. I don't know many sponsors that have done 12 Opportunity Zone deals. You know, when the program came out, we were the third in the nation to launch, first on the East Coast to launch an Oz fund. Um, but again, even though they're called funds, they're really, they're single asset deals. So each of, us. each of your projects has its own private placement offering. That's right. It's okay. Oh, one, I see. You, okay. Yeah. You get one. It's still called an opportunity zone fund though, or a QOF sure. is a legal definition qualified, yeah. you know, opportunity zone fund. Um, but it's, again, it's a misnomer. It's not a fund. It's a single asset. It's like buying a stock. Right. Understood. So. But yeah, we've we've been you know typically we won't do too many deals at once because we like to focus on the deals we're doing. But um, you know we do have this one deal in Port Chester, New York, which I mentioned. You know, very, very unique, twelve uh, story mid rise, views of the water, 12, 42 minute train to Grand Central, fifty yards from the train station, so literally walk to the train direct to the city. Uh, Mero Batali has a restaurant, and uh, you know, in uh, Port Chester is another. Like the downtown is actually has a happening downtown, and like I said, your sandwich between two of the most affluent zip codes in the nation. So, well, being Rye and Greenwich, so it's uh, it's really unique. And again, there, there's been no supply in Port Chester due to arcane zoning. So that's been something that's uh, you know been unique that we're you know we're working on and we're pretty excited about. But you know, there are definitely will be other deals as well. We uh, we are big proponents of the program well we expect to keep playing in the space you know to the end of 26 we really hope the government might will like how well the space is done and extend that uh extend that time and investment horizon by two to three years which i think anyone who anyone who's listening or watching this i think is going to agree with that absolutely it should be you know reformed maybe but but definitely extended i mean it's it's a huge bipartisan success largely um, you know, maybe not totally perfect, but there's been so many success stories. It absolutely deserves to be extended. 
Um, and, and again, I think anybody who's listening to this probably agrees with that. But is, is there a way that investors or advisors could connect with Saxum to learn about upcoming projects that might be coming in the pipeline? Absolutely. Just go to our website, www.saxumre.com. It's Saxum spelled S-A-X-U-M-R-E, realestate.com. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn as well. We're, we're on LinkedIn. We're on, uh, you know, we're on our website. Our website has our portfolio there. There's an investor relations link. So you can just click that and uh, you know, I'll, I'll get that email along with our team. And uh, again, we, uh, you know, all of our investors are accredited investors uh, just to put that disclaimer out there, but, um, but we'd be happy to, you know, to talk to anyone who potentially be interested in um, learning more about Saxon and what we have going on. Absolutely. And for our listeners and viewers, um, if you want links to anything that Chad just mentioned, uh, if you're an accredited investor or an RIA or advisor who's interested, uh, we'll make sure to link to the saxumre.com website as well as link to Chad's LinkedIn page. Uh, another reminder to our listeners and uh, viewers, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening platform so you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Chad, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today really getting in depth to, you know, construction development and all the challenges, but also opportunities right now. Uh, really appreciate your time coming on the show. Anytime. I really appreciate you having me, Andy. It's been a pleasure and always looking forward and excited to talk about opportunities. As you said, it's probably, I think might be the only bipartisan um, <laughs> program that's been this successful over the last uh, handful of years. So we're happy to be involved in it. Thanks again. it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 